this is Bernard Fraser, and you're listening to The Essence of Cool. Today's guest is singer, songwriter, producer, multi-instrumentalist, and owner of Skylark Park Studio, Jordan Zadarosny. His band, Blinker the Star, got its start in 1993, and danced in the big leagues when signed to A&M Records and then DreamWorks. In 2003, he became an independent artist and has continued cranking out great albums ever since. He has collaborated with superstars Courtney Love, Lindsey Buckingham, and Chris Cornell. As a record producer, studio owner, and engineer, he has recorded countless artists at his home studio, including my own project, Church of Trees. His recent release, the 10th Blinker album, Juvenile Universe, has been well received and is climbing the charts on US and Canadian college stations. Today, Jordan tells us why Joni Mitchell, Prince, and Neil Young are the essence of cool. Let's get started. Jordan Zadarosny, welcome to The Essence of Cool. Thank you, Bernard. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing, man? I'm well, thanks. I'm going to be honest with you. I uh, when, uh, when you sent me your three picks for artists to talk about today... I was um, a little, t- little taken aback. I mean, I've gotten to know your musical taste a little bit over the past four years, and I have certainly browsed your extensive vinyl collection. <laughs> but I didn't, th- I didn't, I expected, you know, XTC, Todd Rundgren, but uh, you know, this is a bit of surprise. How difficult was it for you to decide who to choose? Well, once I, once I kind of came up with my own personal kind of definition of of the word cool, which we're discussing, then it was pretty easy, basically. So, which begs the question, what is your personal definition of the word cool? I could kind of have a personal definition because it is such a, um, it is a word that's bandied about so much and has been. Um, I would guess that the word came out of like early 20th century African-American culture. Um, And its meaning over the decades, um, you know, sort of shifts. Its meaning amongst um, different crowds has a different, um, lends it a different meaning. So if you talk to jazz people, cool is a different thing than maybe what your kids are talking about or, or even us, you know, because yeah. I'm not a jazz guy. It has like a stylistic connotation in yeah. that sense. Interesting you say that because I just recently interviewed a jazz guy, a fellow by the name of Tony Stewart, who has a, a cool jazz combo called the Somerset Combo. And uh, he, his tastes run, the, like, like you, like me, his tastes run the gamut. Uh, but he started out as a jazz guy. And he, one of his picks, of course, was Miles Davis. Uh, and we certainly agreed that he <laughs> completely embodies the word cool. But you're right, it changes depending on what what era you're in, what person you're talking to, what artist you're discussing. Um, you know, there, there can be um, a myriad of uh, definitions, can't there? Yeah, and its intensity also changes from decade to decade. I was thinking about that yesterday where, you know, if you were in 1969 and you said something was cool, you might apply that to something that is mind-blowingly great. Whereas my kids, uh, cool is like seven out of 10. Really? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, 
And I guess yeah. maybe that's the reason I said the essence of cool, because I, I want to make sure that we're talking about 10 out of 10 all the time, right? <laughs> well, yeah. And so that's why I was pretty particular about sort of just like trying to come to terms with the word just in my own, in my own head. So what I sort of boiled it down to just for myself, my own personal definition, um, because words change and will continue to change. Yeah. Um, is is like for me when I ex when I say the word cool, what's sort of in my head is um, someone with with a lot of talent, with a great talent that I admire, backed up, and this is sort of key, with a sort of almost a uh, a defensive shell about their trajectory as an artist, and all of them made records that completely defied expectations, flummoxed the record label, flummoxed the public, um, and uh, suffered commercially because of it. Right. But their, um, their particular intensity and, and certainty of their vision could not be swayed by opinion, by finance, by politics, nothing could sway their artistic trajectory. Right. And, um, you know, even critics were baffled at the time um, <clears throat> by um, many records by these three people. Now, the other thing that just kind of popped into my head after I'd chosen these three was that they're basically born only a couple hundred miles from each other. <laughs> yes, that's right. I noticed that. <laughs> all very They've all dealt with the sort of like North American, Northern interior of winters, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and maybe there's, maybe there's um, a bit of that stubborn, um, independent farmer mentality sort of in the water right all of them do share that sort of like they they genuinely don't care what you think about their music right so take like the weirdest albums or you know arguably from each of these artists discography and the you know the public and the critics were you know say you know i always think of like neil's rockabilly album um now, had he just done an electronic album before that? I think trans, so. Trans, yeah, yeah. He does trans, and then he does this rockabilly yeah, album. Like, yeah. <laughs> you're like... <laughs> well, here's... Uh, just to, to sort of play out your definition of cool, here are some of the people that we've talked about so far on the show. David Bowie clearly falls into that category. Bowie could have easily been on my list, of course. Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah. Jeff Buckley. Yeah. Which was an interesting choice. Miles Davis, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, the National. I don't know how I feel about them. Uh, mm. The Clash. Um, mm -hmm. And Holland Oates, which to some, <laughs> to some degree I kind of agree with, you know, because they did have their ups and downs. And uh, arguably when they went from their blue-eyed soul phase to the pop phase that, uh, you know, it, it, it could have flummoxed some record execs expecting more blue-eyed soul and get, mind you, they, tur they uh, turned out to be massive hits. So... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's put that, let's put that aside. Let's jump in to your first pick, which is Joni Mitchell. Mm -hmm. So, 
what was your first contact with Joni? What um, what album did you hear? What uh, song did you hear? And what time frame was it? When uh, like how uh, were you? Yeah, so I was already like um, of course as a kid growing up being into all kinds of music. Um, I was aware of her, but I was not a fan as a teenager. Um, it was sort of, um, it seemed like the music of my friend's hippie mom's record collection. Right. And it wasn't, didn't quite speak to my experience as a 17 year old boy growing up in Canada. So, <clears throat> um, when I moved to Montreal, uh, at age 19 is when, um, you know, I would spend all, whatever cash I could scrape up going to um, use record store cheap thrills and basically buying up um, the rest of the great rock, the records of the great rock canon, you know, that, that I hadn't come across yet. Right. So I moved to Montreal and I'm in this urban place and I'm like, okay, I need to just, in my spare time, fill in my knowledge of all this stuff. So... It, um, you know, it was like The Clash, which I hadn't really explored. And um, um, what else? There was a few other things that I delved into. Well, really, really kind of got into Beefheart as well. Finally oh, wow. yes. went through all of those records. And then I came to Joni. And so where I started, um, which is kind of where, you know, one would start, I guess, if you want to kind of get to the heart of things you know what's the hoopla about is everyone kind of knew or knows that like blue is the one right right and um so i started there and it's a great place to start because it's um by that time i mean what is it her fourth or fifth record already right you know, prop record right. and as we know from box set she had been her um arranging and performing skills in the studio since the early 60s so, um, um, and so she went into what, uh, A&M Studio C. Now, when I got signed to uh, A&M Records in 1994, <clears throat> one of the things we did is they flew us out to LA to kind of, we were signed out of New York, but they were like, well, most of the companies in LA, so you gotta come out and meet David Anderley, the vice president, and you gotta meet your product manager out here on the West Coast, and you gotta meet the college radio staff, et cetera. Right. So they fly us out to LA and we go to the lot, which is the, um, well, at various stages, the, the chaplain uh, lot, uh, it was A&M record, uh, Henson, it was the Henson lot. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, but at that time, it, and for a, for a few decades, it was the A&M lot. Right. So this is like a, um, a, a series of connected buildings in sort of a, with a parking lot interior, you know, right. <laughs> little, <clears throat> yeah. So it was really, really cute in California and um, had a lot of history already. And so when I went there, um, they also have A&M studios, which is a, actually a separate, um, uh, at the time was, uh, they weren't connected. They had the same name, but they were a completely separate entity. Okay. The studios. It was a, it was a separate, independent commercial studio, right. which happened to be. Um, and so they took me around to the studio, Studio A, which is the We Are The World big one. 
right. Studio B, which was kind of in the back more, and then Studio C had been turned into uh, a mixing room, which is where we, um, I don't know if we did any work there later on. Yeah, we did. We mixed, I think we mixed August Everywhere in that little room. Oh. We came back to it years later. But um, in uh, when I first saw it, I think it was still functioning as almost like a small, like a demo studio. So the, the live room, if it could be called live, was maybe eight by 10 feet. That's it. Oh, Just wow. a, with no ambience. It was completely dead in there. Right. With a piano and enough room for someone to record vocals or, a, or an acoustic guitar. Okay. Um, and so the A&R guy was explaining to me, he goes, this is where Joni recorded Blue. Wow. I was like, whoa, in this little tiny place. Yeah. <clears throat> Ah, she just came in here. So, um, so that was kind of hollowed ground and was fun to see. So yeah, that record, I mean, it just has an intensity. She's in, in a lot of ways, it's, it's like Led Zeppelin four to me where it's there. The essence of what they're doing is perfectly crystallized and maybe never better. Um, uh, you it's the last album where you don't hear any jazz right right <laughs> <laughs> now uh, unlike you i started be because i'm um, a little older than you i was listening to her on am radio during the 60s um i mean she seemed to break out uh, of the gate with hits right mm -hmm. because uh both sides now and, uh, I mean, that was an, an early hit, probably. I think, was that off her first album or second album? But it, it was written really early and uh, became a huge success. So I was hearing that. I was hearing Big Yellow Taxi. Um, I was hearing Woodstock on the radio during the 60s, right? Um, so she was always sort of in my consciousness just as kind of a human being living in North America and being exposed to AM radio. I mean, she was everywhere. But I didn't really get into her i mean i heard blue of course um but i didn't seek it out i sought out court and spark i thought i'd live on the edge and jump into like jazz Joni. what yeah. do you think precipitated the change for her other than maybe working with jaco pistorius and people like that <laughs> well yeah her well yeah the the does it go what does it go does it go blue court and spark is that how uh, blue goes? there was an interim uh, album called for the roses now, for the roses is also phenomenal. It's um, I guess I'm wrong. I guess Court and Spark is really where jazz comes in. But interestingly, it really coincided with the mood of the public because that's her biggest album. It. I didn't realize that. I figured Blue it, would be. I finished her um, Reckless Daughter, an excellent biography last year, mm -hmm. and. Uh, was corrected, um, you know, just in my historical understanding of like how big that album was. Court and Spark was the one that made the big flash commercially, which hey, is well, funny. Because it did have a couple of hits. It had what Free yeah. Man in Paris and uh, yeah. what, what was the other one off of that one? I forget. Uh, but they were uh, big. But I didn't think they would be as big as Both Sides Now or um, 
Big Yellow Taxi. I figured, you know, those would be the driving forces behind her earlier albums, which would propel them well, to... We're also, in 1974, we're fully in the era of the... We're in the album era. So... Right. Sales are just going through the roof. And singles, you know, for someone like Joni, that starts to become perceived as not a singles artist anymore. Right. You know. And isn't that interesting that uh, sort of the rise of her notoriety with Court and Spark uh, is sort of uh, runs adjacent to the rise of FM radio, where that in fact, yeah. you know, everybody does sort of change their perspective, right? Great point. The sound of the records, the sound of FM radio, I think was feeding back into the bands, you know, because FM radio was such a big thing for um, the the youth culture, I say youth culture, you know, 18 to 35 of the early 70s, that, you know, bands, of course, were being influenced by the way radio sounded as well, because you were hearing that, you know, the coolest stuff on FM radio. Yeah. You know, it wasn't singles driven. It was really album rock driven. So, right. um, and Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon, everyone's experimenting. Right. <laughs> and analog recording is becoming a high art now with 24 tracks. Right. Uh, 24 tracks are ubiquitous by 1971, 72. So, mm. uh, and so and Spark is like the first, you know, F, her, I, I would say her first like real FM rock radio album. Right. But a jazz album. <laughs> it's pop. It's jazz yeah. pop. Pop jazz. Yeah. Well, the pop jazz, a good definition, because I think about Free Man in Paris, uh, it, it was not your standard rock, and it was certainly not folk, uh, you know, which was her roots. Um, it was something breezier and uh, more refreshing with these kind of funky chords that kind of made you go, what was that? Well, here's the thing is, like, the mood of these songs, she's... Um you know, her tunings are evolving now and her right. chord shape is evolving um, as per her muse and um, taking her into jazzy, jazzier formations. And um, what was I going to say about... Um, oh, yeah, she was using a, lo a, a lot more of these really ethereal uh, suspended chords. Right. And there's this one quote from her where... Um, a writer is saying, you know, what's up with these suspended chords? Like, you're really into these chords. What is it? And she goes, because that, that these suspended chords, they represent my mood. She goes, I can rest in a state of emotional suspension for days. No problem. No result. I can easily exist in that sphere. Not a lot of people can stand that tension. Yeah. He revels in Right. And um, that's why it's so easy, and, and that's why it makes sense that those chords come out in her music. It's just the perfect expression of her personality. Going back to one of uh, your uh, one of the parts of your your definition of cool is doing flummoxing the the record execs. What do you think the record execs were thinking when she came out with Court and Spark? Um, I don't think they were. I mean. Think of the context. Steely Dan are now ruling the airwaves. So jazz rock oh. is not a foreign thing. Right. So I think, and, um, and from uh, reading the book, I mean, is she in bed with Geffen by then? Uh, I think so. Oh, okay. 
and their buddies, they're big buddies. They're in each other's lives. They're, they're, they're intimate friends, you know, right. really good friends. And, um, he was a young man and also, I mean, he knew a hit when he heard it, but he also wanted Joni to push too. And I think that Court and Spark pushed just enough that it got her um, this sort of like, oh, you're now in the league of serious muso people like Steely Dan. You're in that league, although we, we could have we could have figured that out by then anyway. Um, but she has a rhythm section and she's using these Los Angeles studio based, you know, jazz uh, infused units right. that are so um, um, I, I don't think it was that far. Yeah, I think Geffen was thrilled with it. And I think I think that's what happens in the what I read in the book, too, is that, you know, they're just like they were pretty confident it was going to be a hit. It's after this album that she starts to puzzle people. Well, this is, I was just about to say, because not two years later, um, she is musically speaking in bed with Jacob Astorius and mm -hmm. uh, comes out. Uh, I, I'm not sure the pronunciation of the album. Is it Hajira? Well, his thing of summer lawns came out first. Right. Right. And, uh, funnily enough, that's Prince's favorite Joni album. Oh, you're kidding. See, I knew there yeah. was going to be connective tissue between all these three artists. <laughs> uh, yeah, two together. Um, they had an audience. Uh, Joni met Prince in 85. Really? Joni loved. Yeah, Joni was like, wow. She saw a concert uh, on the Purple Rain tour, and she was just like, this guy is the best thing maybe ever. Like, this guy's incredible. Yeah. So they had a big mutual respect. Um, Prince was obsessed with Joni. Um, oh, that, that doesn't surprise me. And, yeah. and I'm sure, sure particularly uh, the, the mid-70s and forward, you know, all the jazz influence stuff, he was probably just crazy for, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. So let, then let's talk about her getting, uh, going a little more off the deep end in terms of her jazz influences. She gets in, she starts working with Jacob Astorius and then finishes off the decade with an album. So here's the thing. I, the, the only two Joni albums I ever purchased, well, actually there was actually three, but the, the, the two main ones that I actually per purchased were Court and Spark. And then I heard these rumblings of her getting really jazzed out and I bought Mingus. Whoa. Which was, <laughs> whoa, yeah. Um, not it's, not a, no, it's not a pop album. No. It's a, yeah. So, uh, again, going back to the, the record company, it, it, she's still with Geffen at this point, I'm assuming? Um, I think so, yeah. So, so the, question, the question is then, I mean, Court and Spark is refreshing, and it's new, and it's light jazz, and I, the emphasis on light jazz by Ooh. the time she gets to mingus there's no more light <laughs> no. no and this is like yeah this is basically her ultimate you know punk move <laughs> right right this is like the um the feedback album you know that lou reed did this is like right right in the album that is going to alienate um, your fan base, they're not going to be able to really follow along. Uh -huh. uh, 
it's kind of a label that, or it's kind of an album that, you, you know, in today's more sorted out sort of uh, um, record industry, they might go, okay, Joni, maybe you go and put this out on Blue Note. <laughs> and, we, and we don't blow a bunch of promotional money on right. something. It's really not going to, you could put every, you could put billboards up in every city in, in the United States and it's still not going to really sell. Um, it's beautiful and it's, um, it's a real story, that record. Um, uh, I love it, but um, it's, yeah, it's like not what a pop singer does. <laughs> so here's the thing. Uh, we've got people like, like David Bowie, um, who takes a, makes a similar move in the, uh, the mid to late 70s. Um, and kind of, but funnily enough, his fan base, his core fan base seems to stick around. Did mm. it stick around for Joni? I don't think so. Um, the hardcore stuck around and will always stick around. And there's enough of those to, um, for Joni to always, you know, her records will always make a profit. I mean, right. it's, um, it would be interesting to see a young Joni Mitchell, what she would do with this industry, you know, maybe she would just go full band camp at a certain point and just be like, I don't need an intermediary. You know, I suspect that, you know, that's where she might've gone. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's uh, speculative. Um, I don't think she held on to a lot of her fan base. And I think, um, you know, by the early eighties, she's kind of gone back to making records that are more palatable um, to a, to a wider audience. Um, they're, they're really chiseled and worked on. Some of them suffer from, um, you know, the production indulgences of the day a little yeah, bit. Yeah. But um, you know, by the nineties, like I like turbulent indigo a lot. It's a pretty cool record. Um, so yeah, that was the 80s. <laughs> I have to admit that, um, you know, I didn't really pay much attention to her in the 80s, and I need to rectify that. I need to go and uh, rediscover her back catalog uh, and immerse myself in her because she is, you know, as you point out, the essence of cool for sure. Check um, Wild Things Run Fast. That's a great one that is completely forgotten. That, which, um, is the, which comes on the heels of Mingus, actually, eh? It's like, um, yeah, it's actually right after. So she takes a bit of a break there from recording uh-huh. and recalibrates um, with, I think, her then boyfriend. I forget his name, but he was a producer. They did a couple records together. So I didn't really um, pay much attention to her until the year 2000. And she comes <laughs> up with this glorious record that i guess is basically her turning some of her favorite jazz songs uh or treating them with uh, with symphony orchestra and she yeah. also does two of her own songs one of which is both sides now giving it the symphonic treatment and it just blew me away she mm. had um i can't remember the network but they did a celebration of Joni where they invited all kinds of um 
uh, amazing artists, uh, who are Elton John, Brian Adams here, I'm just reading it off wiki here, uh, Diana Krall, Cindy Lauper, who do a, a tribute to Joni, singing all of, you know, all of her hits. And then she finishes the show with an or, uh, uh, a full orchestra singing both sides now. And man, I was bawling my eyes out at the end. It was so incredible. It is, yeah. You, you point out that cool uh, is sort of defined by a let's, number let's, of let's, things. Great, great talent hmm. uh, surrounded by a shell of great stubbornness. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. <laughs> is one of the, the, here are a couple of the, the, um, the key words that we've come up with so far uh, in terms of defining cool. Um, the, the artist is innovative. Uh, the un- artist is always uncompromising, always pushing the boundaries, and doesn't give a shit what the critics think or what the fans think. There we go. Yeah. 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 So that, that certainly uh, uh, paints a perfect uh, picture of Joni, doesn't it? What's, yeah. Uh, the other thing I, uh, we talked about, too, is um, whether these artists will stand the test of time. Um, in 50 years, will we look back and still consider Joni cool? Absolutely. Yeah, no, no doubt at all. Um, all three, I mean, <laughs> Neil's catalog, like how Neil Young is perceived is going to shift a lot over time, I feel, because he's so weird. <laughs> um, Yet he's uh, still going to be on that pantheon of greatness, right? He's, he'll never... Yeah, but he, he's put out more records than anyone. And, you know, you have to, not all of them are great. So... Let's just say Neil is messier. Right, right. Prince and um, and Joni, their legacies are tidier. Neil's Neil's um, place in the pantheon is still undefined, which I love it. I think it'll stay undefined forever, really. <laughs> well, listen, hold that thought. Let's take a little break. And when we come back, let's talk a little bit about Prince. Sure. Okay, we'll be right back. Thanks for tuning in to The Essence of Cool. As an independent podcast, we rely wholly and completely on support of listeners like you. If you like what you hear, please help keep us on the air and throw a few bucks in our electronic tip jar. You can find it on the front page of our website, theessenceofcool.com. We truly appreciate your help. Now let's get back to the show. All right, we're back with uh, Jordan Zadarosny. And uh, we just finished talking about Joni Mitchell. We're going to dive into another one of his picks as uh, the essence of cool. And, th- and no argument from me, from me, that's for sure, Prince. What was your first, what was your introduction to Prince? What were you hearing and, and at what time frame? Um, when Doves Cry was um, the, I, I think Little Red Corvette was in the back of my head, but it did not make an impact on me. And that song um came out just a little bit before i was really paying attention which would have been about like 82 83 yeah christmas 82 turning into 83 right is for taking this sort of big really high quality tdk boombox my parents had at home (laughs) and to the local fm station from over in fort collange um yeah because you could hear uh the eurythmics on FM radio instead of CFRA from Ottawa, which was AM, which we, 
you know, it was the top 40 station. Right. So, um, so when Dove's Cry arrives, what, early in 84 or something, or in the summer, I don't remember, but that single came out before, in my memory, the single came out before the, the album. I'm not sure if it did, but... Uh, uh, then we were watching Friday night videos religiously. Yeah, yeah. Music was just around the corner here in Canada. MTV obviously was in full swing. Um, and that song, When Doves Cry, okay, it is weird, especially for an 11-year-old kid. For anyone, like, it's... Um, I know some things about it now that I've read a lot, but there's no bass guitar in it. There's right. no bass right. element which was, you know, taken off at some point in the process, either by accident or by uh, someone just, you know, saying, let's mute the bass. Oh, it was, uh, oh, so there was a bass to begin with. Oh, yeah. Oh, I didn't it know was, that. It was a more fleshed out song. Um, because if you listen to, listen to the vocals in the verses, there are, um, there's no harmonic element there's until like the third or fourth verse where a synth comes in right then you hear like these little augmented chords but the only thing that hints at that are these little har harmony bits he does on the lead vocal and the harmony in the verses that tell you that there's chords right. but the first time i heard the song my ears were not attuned to like you know the little augmented chord thing that he does right and it just sounded like this like that uh, uh, thing at the beginning. Like that sounded almost like a, I don't like, what did that sound like? It just like, <laughs> oh, no. it was super ethereal for sure. It sounded to me like really deserty, like dry. Um, um, and then this really serious lyric where you're not quite, certainly as a kid, I'm like, what is he talking about? Like he's, he's like talking about like this, you know, not getting along with his parents and sort of criticizing his parents, but like, um, there was such emotion in this song um, that was about a relationship that, um, you know, it, it really took me years to unravel what I loved about it. Right. I still am fascinated. I mean, it's one of those songs where that, like, where I'm, one of those rare number one songs that's like, an incredible pop song, but also like weird avant-garde art. And it's number one and yeah. everyone's listening to it. And it's in the cult everywhere. Right. Strawberry Fields, When Doves Cry. Those are the two big examples I can think of where right. it was just the weirdest shit in the world was all of a sudden the biggest in the yeah. world. But he didn't start out like that. I mean, he started no. out uh, very traditional R&B. I remember... So here's a, a little story for you. 1978, I'm downtown Toronto shopping through the delete bins at Sam's and ANAs. And I distinctly remember being in ANAs and hearing this really cool R&B kind of sly in the family stone-ish sound. And I asked the clerk who it was. And she said, oh, that's, this is a new artist by the name of Prince. You better keep an eye on him. He's going to be famous. <laughs> and, and I didn't buy the album because I, you know, I was in the middle of looking for, I don't know, Euro disco or something. <laughs> um, but I remember it really resonating. 
And uh, then again, I heard something off of the second album, which was the Prince album, which sounded more kind of uh, still R&B, but more produced, more like... Um, Ashford and Simpson, if you remember them from the 70s. Um, yeah. But, it's, but it, 1999 is five albums later, and mm -hmm. he's a he somehow morphed into this kind of pop, this fusion of pop and R&B, which is way more palatable and certainly w w way easier to get on the, on the radio. <laughs> he was really influenced by, like, the new wave bands, you know, right? like the Cars. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, 1999, of course, w w when Dove's Cry was, was on 1999, right? No, it wasn't on... Um, it's uh, on uh, Purple Rain. It is Purple Rain? Oh, okay. Because 1999, yeah. it seems... So this is five albums on. The four albums prior, he did everything. He did all the vocals. He recorded all the instruments. In fact, he was sort of engineering it as well. He always had uh, an engineer on, on standby, but uh, he seemed to do everything. But 1999, uh, with Little Red Corvette, and then into Purple Rain, he's suddenly opening the doors and allowing people like Lisa and Wendy to participate in the recording process, as well as participate a little bit in the writing process. Um, but, and I wonder how difficult that was for him. Um, I mean, I, it seemed to help make the transition into the pop, more of the pop world, but for a guy who's controlling everything, suddenly relenting and allowing other people to get involved, that must've been hugely difficult for him. Do you think? Um, I think it was sweetened by the fact that, I mean, Wendy and Lisa are, monstrous talents in their own right yeah. so him finding them is such a massive it's like john finding paul you know it's a really big deal right. and it's not um it's not like he was just sort of letting people in for the sake of letting people in right. um he knew that he I, he knew that he needed a live band and um and i think that he liked the idea of a band like he had, like as you say the first four albums are completely him right um um, he, he also liked to play with personalities and adopt different personas. I think that by having um, these different characters, and they really did kind of seem, you know, really tailored, these characters that right. suddenly stage with Prince. Like, they all seem to have a backstory as soon yeah. as you saw them. You know, yeah, and what, what? <laughs> and um, so I think it was a, also a way of him to express different aspects of his personality, yeah, and you know, the way, yeah, yeah, because he was such a broad and complicated person, <laughs> yeah. But do you think it was, um a decision he made that I'm going to I'm going to put a band together and I'm going to have them help me record or did was it just happenstance? Do you think? No, nothing's happenstance. I think with Prince, I think that um, you know he um, Minneapolis at the time was like a really fertile place. There yeah. was a lot of music happening, and it was a really happening competitive vibrant scene so um and prince 
you know, starting his whole thing up, really up the game. And there was Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. There was just a lot of music. There was across town. There's there's Bob and Grant and uh, the replacements and all that. Right. Um, so there's a lot of stuff happening. So there's a lot of people to choose from. Uh. And um, um, yeah, he didn't have to go far to find these incredible people, yeah. which is amazing. I mean, this this is like this is a local band. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know? It felt unified and like an authentic band right away. It, 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 the revolution never felt like tagged on to Prince. No. You know? Yeah, I remember watching Purple Rain, uh, the film, and thinking, yeah, this does look like a really sort of unified outfit. The, they belong together. Uh, but it didn't last long, did it, with the revolution? Well, 1999 until... Sign of the Times? Uh, or no, Around the World in a Day? Sign of the Times is the divorce, yeah. Is it? Okay. Okay, so yeah. then it's uh, what, three, three years, I guess. Well, he started working with Lisa, I guess, in, in 1999, and then added the rest of the band for, for Purple Rain, right? Right. So, yeah, it's a four or five-year, three, four, five-year period. Um, where they're actively involved in his music. And the sign of the times is like, you know, mostly a solo stuff, but there's some revolution stuff on there. Right. I remember um, watching some clips of Lisa and Wendy talking about their days with him. And it seemed like there was, um, I don't know, um, there was a, 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 a lot of sort of infighting and uh, jockeying for position in terms of the hierarchy and uh, that they really wanted to be recognized as contributors to the songwriting process. And it didn't seem like Prince was really willing to give them too much. Well, let's, let's, let's imagine the intensity of this situation and the fact that we're all like 26, 26, old and we're just humming from this experience that's like basically really going well it's it's like a new sensation in entertainment basically prince and his band and they're so big that yeah and and these people are all good enough on their own that of course they have egos as well right and um but ultimately you know prince ran it his way and um at the end of the day he was back alone in the studio again but making different music. Yeah. What would you cite as your favorite Prince album? <laughs> it's really difficult between Purple Rain and Sign of the Times, but it's those two. Which were sort of, I mean, both in the mid-80s. So yeah. uh, he didn't, really didn't catch on for the first several albums and then kind of waned for the last five or six albums, right? Well, so Purple Rain was the mega, mega, mega success. Right. Um, and then, bang, he follows it up with Around the World, Around the World in a Day, which could also be my favorite. Like, it okay. was an extraordinary psychedelic pop record. Right. Um, um, I love it to death. And it was the, it was the first one I bought, actually. Raspberry, Beret, Raspberry Beret was on that one, right? It was, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, every song is incredible. Um, um, then he did the Parade album, which is also the you know that black and white movie he did, which was a as a film was a big flop at the time. It's fun to watch now. It's like a rock fantasy thing, so it's fun. Right. Um, um, which had number one song, Kiss. 
Oh, right. Um, right. But both albums came out so fast that they almost didn't totally register with people, you know, because he was releasing music so quickly. Right. Um, that it, it was so weird that by 87, when Sign of the Times came out, it was already seen as like a comeback album. <laughs> like, Foreign was only two and a half years before, so it was weird. Right. Um, but there was a big deal. There was a lot of, lot of, you know, um, ecstatic press um, that came with that album. Like, it was universally, instantly hailed as a classic. Yeah, yeah. Rightfully so. It was understood. Like it was one of those albums that was understood right from the get go. Like this is a this is extraordinary. Right. Now I, I know you. Um, there's a you know a core group of your friends that were really into, you know Van Halen and uh, some of the harder stuff. Did you ever get any backlash from uh, listening to Prince? And did any of your friends say, "What the hell are you listen to him for?" Absolutely. And. Um, um yeah i was the guy with prince in his walkman all the time i was the prince guy right and then yeah i think people kind of got it by the end of high school that i'd like you know this guy's serious right were you i mean were you actively trying to turn people on to him or did you sort yeah. of keep them to yourself oh you did oh, right? oh always yeah. yeah yeah always on mixtape for yeah. people I'm I'm, de I'm I'm interested to hear what some of the conversation might have been like, especially for some of your real Rockhead fans, uh, friends. Uh, uh, what, what, how, what what's uh, what does it sound like with Jordan trying to convince them that they should listen to Prince? Um, I would just I, I would just kind of put Prince into like the historical pantheon of rock and let them see it in that way, right. and that he is the heir of both Jimi Hendrix and James Brown at the same time. Ooh, true, eh? With some, like, you know, middle America uh, new wave of, right. like, early 80s, like, um, the Cars and, you know, Journey. He was into that stuff, too, so. Right. No, I, he was he influenced by the trends of the time, too, but he filtered it through such a, you know, such a individualistic cone <laughs> that uh, it always sounded like Prince. Well, that's true. And isn't it interesting that his, a lot of his filter was sort of, er, well, you know, like early James Brown and, uh, you know, all of the early R and B. So to, to filter new wave through um, um, R and B um, w what a novel way to sort of, uh, to change the, the sound of pop. Right. Here's another thing is I got to know a uh, sound guy that um, worked with Prince in the very, very early days. Okay. It was around 77 to like 81 or whatever. Okay. And uh, he remembers seeing Prince at the Tommy Bolin show in Minneapolis. Oh, wow. Stage. Prince is 16, already knows how to get backstage. At the he loved Tommy Bolin. Weird, eh? <laughs> Deep Purple, you know, yeah, like, know. <laughs> and he's at the forum backstage in the basement, hanging with all the cool guys at 16. He was already known locally as like, oh, this kid's, you know, hot. Right. And had enough savvy to talk his way backstage to a stadium show or a hockey rink show. You know? Right, right. 
So, um, like, Prince's influences were, you know, not just the R&B stuff, obviously, that's there, but, like, Deep Purple is in there, and Journey is in there, and, like, he he really loved, and the cars, certainly. Like, there's a great um, bootleg of him doing uh, Let's Go, covering Let's Go, like, uh, by the cars live. Oh, wow. Cool. And it makes, it makes total sense. Yeah, to yeah. Do it. It's like, Oh, it sounds like a Prince song now. <laughs> well, it's yeah, funny because I, I listened to this, some of those very early albums, and there is so much uh, R&B, but where the hell did those amazing rock, the, uh, rock god uh, guitar licks come from, right? From Tommy Bolin, from Zappa. Yeah. I mean, he was in, he adored Led Zeppelin. Right. I think he saw them play. Oh, really? Um, yeah, Led Zeppelin, he adored. Yeah, he was a massive Led Zeppelin fan. So. Right, right. Yeah. Wow. I just wanted to talk a little bit about just that concept of cool. And one of the things that we've, uh, we've chatted in past, about in past episodes is whether or not cool is something that a young artist sort of carving out his niche needs to be thinking about. Is that is cool something that you can cultivate, or is it something you just come by honestly? Mm. I mean, that's a complicated question. Everyone kind of has their own path, and it depends, you know, what you're really aiming for. Um, if you're aiming for a long-term career that will be taken seriously on some level, then um, mind your cool, kid. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but. Yeah. Um, but if not, um, if you're trying to make a quick buck, you're not going to pay attention. Right. Um, I want to take a, a quick break before we do. Um, I honestly didn't really pay attention to the stuff in the, the 2000s and 2010s. And uh, was, he ch- was he still changing or was he sort of sticking yes, with and he was- yeah, and he was having a ball doing it, too. Um, he was opening up collaborations. He had uh, this all-female rock band for a while that were, you know, really on fire band. Right. Um, and to be honest, I haven't... I mean, he released so much material while we weren't really paying attention right. that I happily still have a lot of listening to do. Um, but it's been so fun going through these reissues. The last two years, the Sign of the Times thing is unbelievably great that the huge box set that came out a couple months ago for sign of the times right it's incredible and i you know i'm saving up my pennies for the to get a physical release of that thing because that <laughs> fun. yeah but it's on spotify and you can go through it and um uh, it's one of like i'm really not usually interested in these um retrospective box sets um this one is the exception it's great yeah yeah okay on that note let's take a a little break and we're going to come back and talk a little bit about uh uh another canadian artist who uh, you have uh, dubbed as the essence of cool and that is neil young so we'll take a break and we'll be right back
We want to hear from you. Let us know what you liked and even what you didn't like. Have you got a show or guest idea? Well, drop us a line. Our email addy is info at theessenceofcool.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Now let's get back to the show. And we're back with Jordan Zadarozny, and we're about to talk about Neil Young. Tell me your introduction to Neil Young. Uh, I started to really pay attention when um, I think my buddy Nathan in our little group um, showed us Cinnamon Girl. Right. And we were like, oh, that's what that guy does. Because we'd seen him on, um, we were like 11 years old when um, Tears Are Not Enough, which is right. for our American listeners, it, it was the Canadian We Are the World. And if you want to have a hoot, go and check it out on YouTube. Who was it that was producing? I don't remember, but Foster uh... and that stoned and drunk Neil Young in the That's studio. Right. And so the video is basically, you know, almost the same as the We Are We Are the World video. It's like here's all the superstars right. putting down egos in the studio, singing <laughs> each a line, right? And so it's 1984, 1985, and tears are not enough. And there's you know Anne Murray, there's Getty. There's Platinum Blonde, there's Luba, yeah. everyone in their 80s bedazzled best, right? <laughs> With the big hair, yes. <laughs> hair and um, squared off shoulders and, yes. you know, <laughs> enough hair spray to ignite the place. And um, Neil is in the video and he's he sings that line kind of out of tune. It's like, somehow our innocence is <laughs> And it just, because he's unshaven, he yes. looks like 1976 warmed over <laughs> in this beat jacket of Mackinac, as I remember it. And so that's the first time. Here's what I love. Who is that relic? Oh, wow. Um, and then um, it would have been about maybe a year or so later. Um, you know, my friends, my two good friends, Doug and Nathan, they had older brothers with older brother record collections. Right. So, hey, you heard Neil Young? Well, he's no, not really. Check this out. So, uh, it, you know, Cinnamon Girl, that um, everyone knows this is nowhere would have been my first real like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is cool. Right. This is great. What was it about, uh, what was it about what you heard from Neil? Um, okay. that turned you on. Someone had a cassette of Harvest, so we were like, okay, okay, there's a decent place to start as well. Right. And going through that, and, you know, if Neil Young would have um, died after Harvest and after the gold rush, I, I wouldn't be having this discussion with you. It's like, those are undoubtedly great folk rock classic records with his, you know, sort of most enduring hits. Right. Um, for me, when I start getting interested is 1974's On the Beach, Tonight's the Night, and Zuma. Those three albums that come in a row, 74, 75, 76. Okay. Is On the Beach so, really didn't go anywhere, did it? It kind of flopped as an album. It, um, at the time, but it's, well, it had Walk On. It had a hit. Okay. Right. Um, it's a dark album. It's my favorite Neil album, for sure, On the yeah. Beach. Um, I have a vinyl copy where you open it up that they they even colored the inside of the jacket like it was so beautifully done. Oh wow! Love the album cover. 
Um, it has revolution. It was my all time favorite Neil song. Um, that record, uh, it, it, it's recorded kind of drunk and stoned in their rehearsal space, but mm-hmm. um, he had David Briggs with him all through the time in the 70s and 80s, um, watching Quality Control and basically Neil's studio um, uh, co-pilot, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, Tonight's the night, incredible. Just like the the, um, the vibe on these records is like, is so fragile, but also has um, a sort of dangerous electricity to it that, that a, a, a wiry sort of like loose cannon vibe that is unsettling that I love about those records. Yeah. He's known for making some dramatic left turns. Um, and I think, all, you know, all of the artists that you've mentioned, uh, well, I don't know if uh, Prince never really made any dramatic left turn. He didn't have kind of a Joni moment or a David Bowie moment or a, um, a Neil Young moment, did he? He put all of his variety onto the albums. He didn't do like phases, right? right? right. You listen to kind of the time. It's not a phase. That thing is a jukebox. Right. You know? But Neil uh, made a very specific left turn uh, in the early 80s when he, I've been thinking particularly about trans, where he kind of goes electronic, I guess. (laughs) What what do you think, for artists like that, and maybe Joni uh, getting into her jazz phase, or maybe Bowie getting into his uh, kind of a German electro phase, what is it that precipitates these massive changes? Is it just, I want to try something completely different because I'm bored, or what is it? I think it's different in... in, in in each of the cases. Um, for Bowie, you know, he had an instinct for coming trends and for the next thing. Right. Um, so his left turns tend to be anticipatory. Neil's left turns, to me, especially in the 80s, tend to be reactionary. And it's certainly where his politics dwelled for a few years um, in the mid-80s. Um, he's supporter of Ray and um, sort of became like a... Um, well, trends. Let's talk about trends. He signs to Geffen Records. So this is key because <clears throat> Reactor had come before, um, which I think is a great rock record, but didn't do too much business. Hawks and Doves, the one before. So he's coming off two records that are sort of commercially listless. Um, signs a new deal with Geffen, who he had had amicable relations with in the 70s. Uh, I'm sure Joni... Um, working with him was an influence as well. Right. Uh, he had signed John Lennon. So that was the biggest coup in the record industry. Right. All right, let's go with David Geffen. So uh, he signs with Geffen and turns in his first record, an electronic rock record called Trance. Just confuses everyone. Um, we, let's shuffle the cards. It's less than a year later. Let's put out a full Po-faced, everybody, um, rockabilly album mm. with brilliant videos, um, a tour which was apparently one uh, uh, something to behold. There's a couple of videos on YouTube. Um, the tour was sort of a different thing than the album. Um, 
and was pretty out of control from what I read. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So do go and check some of the really weird and entertaining, the, the live clips from the um, Everybody's Rocking tour. Right. Um, but then, you know, he really puts his chips in for um, country music. And uh, a couple weeks ago, I, I was going through some old Rolling Stone magazines I found, and I found like the feature article in Rolling Stone when Neil's putting out Old Ways. And he's like saying things like, well, you know, um, I just noticed that there's no sense of community in the rock and roll community anymore. And so I started hanging out at country gigs and um, everyone's like, cool. So it's, it feels like the sixties when I hang out with the country guys. So I'm going to, because I'm, I'm just doing country albums from here on out to the end of my career. I promise you that. <laughs> so, <clears throat> landing on water. I remember, let me just revise my story about um, when I became aware of Neil Young. Nathan came up to me in grade eight and said, Hey, have you seen the Neil Young video? And I was like, no, just check it out and be on much music or whatever. So it's touch the night from um, landing on water, which is 86. Okay. And the big hype at the time was that he did a video for every song on the album, but it's like one continuous shot or something. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Everyone will touch the night. Um, if you listen to it, the production's really weird mid eighties, but the song is like classic Neil when you listen to it again. I said, right. great fun song actually. Yeah. Uh, and there's a couple weird, cool moments. Um, Life came out in 87. I remember buying it and bringing it to, um, the hockey, the hockey uh, locker room, you know, we would listen to music before and the coach was like a younger guy who was cool and he was like, uh, Neil's lost it, man. This is bad. <laughs> and that album is like the most clunky of Neil's career, but I, I still like it. But then in 88, he does this notes for you, this sort of like he turns, right. He right. turns us back on his sort of like, <clears throat> mildly right-wing politics in the last couple of years, and he comes out with a big F you to corporate sponsorship. This notes for you. Becomes a huge hit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is after he leaves Geffen. <laughs> the last Geffen album he turned in was Life, and so Geffen sued him for making quote-unquote unrepresentative Neil Young music. Oh, no. Um, and there was much bitterness for many years between those two. Yeah. Uh, but then Neil has a huge career revival after the Geffen years. Right. Whereby, you know, a couple of really loved that, like Freedom comes out, Rolling Stone gives it five stars immediately. Um, Ragged Glory, he, he basically could do no wrong. He, uh, he's back to making earthier guitar music at the perfect moment when grunge is exploding. Right. He is adopted of grunge, thereby making a link to another generation and solidifying his place in the hall. Well, I remember his, um, his performance on Saturday Night Live in the late 80s, and he performed Rocket in the Free World. That's the greatest thing ever, that, that performance. I mean, that, that was uh, sort of the epitome of grunge, right? And that's, did it not kind of predate the rise of grunge a little bit? It did. I mean, nine when that aired, or ninety, whatever it was, um, you know, Mudhoney and Soundgarden and Nirvana were all making records, but it hadn't bubbled into right. the public consciousness 
up for another year. Right. So that's what I'm saying. Neil was just perfectly aligned and he took out Sonic Youth in 1991, you know, and introduced them to the classic rock generation who did not like them. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's all sorted itself out, you know. Um, um, it made perfect sense for him to bring out Sonic Youth. I mean, Neil really understood his place yeah. in the world better than anyone at that point, I think. He had come out of the fog of... Like, he was really not into the 80s. He, like, I read so many interviews where he's just like, I don't get it. It's just, uh, everything's so plastic. I don't get it. Yeah. That, <clears throat> you know, when, as soon as he went back to his old playbook uh, by the end of the 80s, the culture had sort of tired of the overly mechanized production of the 80s music right. and um, this natural sort of reaction in grunge and, and, and music, pop music in general kind of went back to a earthier, woodier place for a few years. Right. And, I, you know, for the next 20 years, uh, sort of continues this trend of vacillating from, you know, more rootsy to more grungy to whatever. Um, uh, what was, sort of, let's say the last, since the year 2000, what has been um, your favorite Neil album or your favorite Neil phase or era? <laughs> I mean, it's quite confusing. What was the album he did with Daniel Lenoir where he mic'd the, uh, put on different mics on his, um, on his guitar and it was just basically Neil's voice well, and the guitar? Well, that one is my favorite of the last 20 years, Lenoir's. Okay, yeah. With with Lanois, I think it's outstanding. Uh, it's a real hoot. A um, lot of cool. I mean, it's basically just Lanois messing around with echo boxes and stuff. And, yeah. And uh, um, uh, the key though was 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 not so much the Sonics. I feel as Danny telling Neil that he didn't have enough good songs to make an album, which no one had told Neil since uh, David Briggs had died. Oh wow. So he wasn't used to hearing that. He was like, huh? Yeah. You really? You're telling Neil Young that his songs aren't good enough? Yeah, I am. <clears throat> so Neil begrudgingly, you know, went away and came back with some better songs. And um, great on Lanwa. I think that's great. Um, the other I, I listened to each one at least once when they come out. Um, Lanois was the one that really stood out to me, though, as being a lot of fun. I liked that record a lot. Right. And then he got back uh, with Crazy Horse for uh, a couple of albums early in, what, 2012? Yeah, and, and then he did that record with, like, the younger guys. Um, was it called Colorado, I think? Oh, right, yes, uh, 2019, right. I fully admit that I haven't really listened to even a percentage of, a small percentage of his uh, albums, right? Because he's got so and what, he's got 25 yeah, albums no, out? Like in the last 10 years, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> What do we was look look at um, people like Joni and and Neil and Prince historically? What do we take away from their careers as artists? Um, well, it, it's difficult because these rules don't apply to everyone. They apply to people that are as talented as those people. Almost, yeah. you know. Yeah. <laughs> because when they're that extraordinary, the rules are a little different. Right. Um, it was pretty apparent 
1977 that, you know, what Prince was capable of. And it was really something different. And same with the other two. Um, um, that being said, um, these are people who, um, as reflected in their music, have a really defined sense of taste that they have a, their tastes are really um, exact and precise and narrow. And they're expressing this through their music. Yeah. Uh, not to say that it doesn't come from a lot of places, but the way that they kind of channel that stuff um, comes out in such a uniquely Neil Young way, in a uniquely Prince way, in a uniquely Joni way. Yeah. Um, they cannot sound like anyone else, mm-hmm. even if they try. Right. And that's what's, what's sort of like fun is watching each of them get bored of themselves. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Eh? <laughs> and reinvent the wheel time and time again, because what do you do with this great talent? And what do you do with this short attention span and this, uh, you know, desire to just keep forging forward right this is what you do well said um on that note i want to wrap up our uh, chat about the various artists i do want to have a quick game before we let you go and i know it's i <laughs> appreciate this because it's been uh, a bit of a marathon here but uh, um such an interesting conversation i want to play my little game of cool not cool so I'm going to throw out a bunch of names, and uh, I want you to tell me in your estimation, are they cool or not? And if you, okay. <laughs> if you want to back that up with a bit of dialogue, please feel free. So the first okay. one is Kanye West. Not cool. What, why does he have such a cachet with uh, such a core group in the younger generation, do you think? Well, I'm talking about present day. I mean, there's the, the early records are kind of astonishing moments that I think are incredible, but something about his narcissism has made him boring and repetitive to me in the last or so years. Right. And I think when that sets in, someone becomes less interesting. Right. And I don't, I I think that his initial rise to fame is completely merited and deserved. Okay. And I think it was cool. So I, I'm saying not cool in the present. Te- you know, if, if this was 15 years ago or whatever, you'd get a different answer. Right. Yeah. No, fair enough. Moving on. The tubes. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> they, they just, yeah, really cool. And also, even when they sold out, they're cool. <laughs> <laughs> Are you talking about when they sold out courtesy of Todd Rundgren? <laughs> TV is king. Is that what we're talking well, about? Well, yeah. I, I heard like whatever their bid for stardom was, it was like, and it said 85, it was on the 80s channel on uh, Sirius the other day. And I was like, whoa, that does not sound like their first album. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it, truly. You know, I, I think back because my first introduction, my introduction to them was the live album, which came out in what, 74, 75. And it was such oh. an interesting sound and so unique. And then, you know, the mid 80s, they're. <laughs> They're basically uh, doing pop rock, right? <laughs> it's like Debbie Gibson all the way. That's right. <laughs> okay. Sex Pistols uh, slash Johnny Light. I mean, just that initial uh, initial roar in the culture. Um, 
what can you say about it? It's just it gave everyone a kick. And that record is such a great, in the end, it's a great rock record, you know? Right. It's just such a roar to this day. Yeah. Um, I don't really give much of a toss about the ups and downs of his life and his outrageousness. It, to me, it's, it's a great story every time he's in the news. Somehow the one I read today is he got, um, he's got fleas on his balls from having a uh, pet <laughs> yeah, squirrel. I, in I saw that. <laughs> uh, awesome. Awesome. <laughs> Andy voted for Trump. Awesome. So cool to me. <laughs> okay. Uh, Lemmy. Lemmy. Yeah. Oh, coolest of all. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. yeah. Hands down. David Byrne. Um, cool. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So th- uh, one of the uh, lines of conversation we've been having over the past uh, several episodes is <clears throat> how your uh, impression of an artist may change the more you become intimately aware of their personal lives. And should you allow that information to taint your view of his, of the, um, the person's artistry? I just, I think, no. do, I think about um, the, the Chris France book and, uh, you know, he's, he's pretty clear about how much of an egotist uh, uh, David was and how he was trying to take all the credit for all the songs when clearly, you know, the band... Um, I mean, this stuff is interesting history for those of us that care, but does it change one thing about, let's just say, the impact of once in a lifetime yeah. uh, in... In, in the culture of the planet over the last 40 years. No. Yeah. That song has pervaded every nook and cranny of the culture in one way or another. Yeah. And so this stuff is just history talk. It's just like he said, she's, you know, it's, I want to read it and I love the gossip. <laughs> but it doesn't, it doesn't, for me anyway, it doesn't change uh, the greatness or lack of greatness of anyone's work. Yeah. I've, and I'd agree with you. Uh, all it does, though, is causes me to question my loyalty to the artist, I guess. It doesn't change the value of the artistry in any way, shape, or form. But I guess, uh, you know, whenever I think yeah. about... Yeah, it's sort of like, if, if that guy's a dick, am I going to spend 100 bucks on a concert ticket? Maybe not. Right, right not do that anymore yeah but i love the songs and whatever yeah Yeah. okay moving on kiss cool well (laughs) as uh, one of my favorite instagram um uh users is kiss was cool once so let's remember (laughs) that i'll just (laughs) although i'm I'm endlessly fascinated by the i remember the um jeans uh um series uh it was really interesting to so get get a look inside uh you know the the mind of the the man behind kiss you know and how much of uh, a real businessman he was and uh which really factored into the success uh, the success of kiss right there's some early uh there's one really early interview uh with gene simmons that i heard remember her name she's a great fm radio jock from the 70s i think she's still on serious but she did an interview with gene it's like when the first album came out and it's like in this quiet studio and he's the most like understated paul is too in the early interviews they're both really understated yeah like low-key right sort of emerged a bit more over the years you know that they became sort of louder in interviews and more braggartly (laughs) 
Yeah, I, I think at some point Gene decided that it made sense for him to be a salesman. Yeah. Let's move on for from Kiss. Uh, St. Vincent, Annie Clark. Uh, oh, the cool, extraordinary artist. Yeah. Um, and can, is going to go in so many different interesting and awesome um, pathways in the future. I can't wait. Yeah. yeah. And that's the thing. You're always looking forward to what's going to happen next because you don't, it's going to be unexpected, right? Yeah. And also just on a side note, just one of my favorite guitar players. And I think, I mean, I don't know too much about her and I haven't seen too many interviews, but it sounds like she was influenced by Prince on the guitar level to me. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Uh, just a couple more. Uh, Phil Collins. Well, I mean, yeah, I, this one's so personal to my taste. I know. <laughs> as cool as it can be, but, you know, Rod Stewart way, you know, I, I'm not really into too much of what he's done since 1990. Right. So, yeah, I understand why, you know, anyone who's a little younger than me might just see Phil as this that's does cheesy ballads and in the air tonight. But I'm, you know, as a drummer, he's almost at bottom level for me. Yeah. Um, as a songwriter, for a certain period of time, from like, you know, 79 to 85, I feel he, you know, was one of the best pop songwriters ever. And, and an amazing singer, amazing singer. As well. He really is. He really is. Yeah. Uh, let's finish with a bang. Courtney Love. <laughs> Oh, that's just, that's like, that's just, that's too messy. How do I answer that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's give her cool. Um, A messy cool. uh, A messy cool. Um, I'm super glad that she exists and um, uh, she broke down some doors. Um, I'm, I don't think, you know, her music is necessarily going to be remembered. But um, um, she made a big impact on the culture. I think she's out there fighting the good fight to this day. Yeah. And uh, I had a great time with her. How significant a role did she play uh, in your artistic career, would you say? Not very much, but she gave me good advice and she kind of looked after me and, you know, um, really consciously negotiated Hollywood in front of me to sort of like show me this is how it's done. Don't worry about that. Pay attention to that. Right. Way to work the room, kid. Oh, I was working the room? Yeah, you were. Um, (laughs) um, She was really, really nice to me. So I have my own personal, you know, feelings about her, which are are generally very positive. So um, she she made me laugh. I mean, she's funny. Yeah. Funny person. And... um, so that was a really, yeah. Um, I don't think musically, um, don't think I learned too much musically from her. Um, it's fun to watch her write very good lyrics, though. She's good. Yeah. Listen, I can't thank you enough for spending this time with us. And uh, it was a truly a delightful conversation. It was fun, Bernard. Thank you. Yeah.
My heartfelt thanks to Jordan for a truly interesting conversation and for hanging out for almost an hour and a half. His 10th album, Juvenile Universe, can be found on Bandcamp as well as on your favorite streaming app. Thanks for joining us, and until next time, I'm Bernard Fraser saying, please support independent artists and stay safe. <laughs>